Welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello, and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm here with Wendy, and we are back home in Lisbon after our long Camino. Yes, our very, very long Camino that took uh, 60 days in total, if you're counting going all the way to Fisterra. Um, Yeah, we were planning on something more like 40-something days, but uh, yeah, things happened a bit differently than we had originally planned. We didn't really have too much of a plan to begin with, to be honest. We didn't know what we were doing, and it all worked out in the end. It just took us a while. Yeah, it did, and we ended up going, as we said uh, previously, a different way from the way that we'd anticipated at the back end of the Camino. And so we do have a couple more episodes in this season just to talk about that last part. And so we will do this today with the Camino de Jeda y dos Ajeidos, which is quite a mouthful to say. Yeah, well, uh, and there are a few different ways that you can say it, actually, depending on what language you're speaking, I guess. You pronounced it in the Portuguese way, pronouncing the G as a soft G, like Jeda. Um, and we weren't sure actually how to pronounce it when we, because we had only seen it written, we hadn't heard it spoken, and so I think we were saying it as Geta in our heads initially, and then when we met with Enhiki uh, in Braga, who is the co-author of the guide to the Jada, then uh, he, we noticed that he was saying Jada. So, oh, okay, we've been saying it wrong this whole time. It's Jada. And then later, when we got into Galicia, people were saying Gaeta. And so we realized that in Portuguese, it's pronounced as Jada, and in Galego, it's pronounced as Gaeta. And I don't think we ever really talked about it with anyone in Spanish, so I'm not totally sure, but I imagine that it would be something like Heida or Heida. Um, so yeah, you can take your pick. Yeah, it's a little bit complicated. If this Camino is really going to take off, um, it would have been better to have maybe a, a zippier, easier to pronounce name. Um, but the name does form part of what the Camino is about. Uh, so just to introduce it a little bit, uh, it's a 239-kilometer Camino from Braga in Portugal to Santiago de Compostela. And it really is divided into these two sections, the Jeda section and the Ajeiros section. And... The Jeda uh, refers to the Roman road, and it was originally the Roman road that went from Braga to Astorga, uh, which is on the Camino Frances and, and would be known to pilgrims. And so the, the name Jeda does refer to this Roman road in some way. I believe that Iniki again told us that it would, they saw some of the milestones that were alongside the Roman road had Jeda or Geta written on them. So it's thought that this was uh, a name that the Romans used to refer to this road. Later on, the various different Roman roads in Spain and Portugal and elsewhere in Europe were given numbers, Roman numeral. So I, and I don't remember now which number this one is. Is it 18 or 19? I think it's something like that. But, um, yeah, because they've actually found evidence of a proper name, uh, then it's referred to in this case as the Jada or the Geta. And so this is kind of the focus of the first few days of this Camino, the kind of almost the first half of the Camino. And then the second half is this Achieros, and this means wine carriers. And it refers in general to a kind of merchant road that existed in the medieval period leading towards Santiago. And so it was often these wine carriers who were uh, bringing grapes and 
I don't know if it was fully uh, bottled wine and things like that or, or just grapes along this road. I think it was the fully produced wine that was produced in the the Ribeiro district area and then brought up to Santiago, which is where it was a big area of consumption of wine. And uh, so, yeah, this was a main path that they would have traveled. Arrieros in the term arriero in Gallego uh, can refer to people that transport any kind of merchandise, really. Um, but in this case, it refers specifically to the wine that was carried from Ribeiro, which is a well-known wine area area that the Camino passes through and up into Santiago. So it's kind of interesting that this, in modern times, is a sort of a newly developed Camino. It's sort of being developed now, but you have these two... Uh, historic parts of it, you know, the original Roman road and then later this medieval merchant road. So it does form this historical path going from Braga to Santiago. And so that's cool. Yeah. And pilgrims obviously would have used that same path as well. So it is a historic Camino. And just a, a final note on this sort of division of this Camino into two. So it's divided by theme, the Roman road, and then the, the vineyard section. Um, and for us, it was also divided by weather. Mm. Uh, which is something that we'll get into later, but basically uh, a bit of a spoiler is we had really nice weather at the beginning and not such nice weather at the end. Yeah, but we did have nice weather for our final arrival into Santiago, which was very nice. And it was interesting to think about you know, something we've been thinking about really for this whole Camino was the idea of how to build a Camino because we were walking on firstly the Camino Nascent, which is just being developed now. And then lastly, the Jada, which is also just kind of being developed now, but in very different ways. Mm. And then the sense was very much a top down uh, government tourism um, initiative. And the Jada is very much a bottom-up initiative where there's a handful of people who are doing a lot of work and who are really passionate about it, and that's incredible to see. And it was really interesting, I think, for us to see the different approaches. Yeah, and to meet some of those people uh, and, you know, get to know them and uh, become friends with them and, yeah, really see how much uh, time and effort they've put into trying to promote this Camino. It's a Camino that doesn't have that many pilgrims at the moment. Probably the majority of pilgrims who do walk it are Portuguese, perhaps, uh, because it starts in Braga, which is one of the main cities of Portugal. And it's a fairly short Camino, around 10, 11 stages. Uh, You also have a lot of cyclists who do it, and you can cycle it in around three days, uh, depending, maybe four. And we've even seen some people, or heard of some people doing it in two days. Um, But that's kind of a long weekend that people will do from Braga, but they're really racing through it. Yeah, I mean, being a bicigrino is a whole other thing than being a peregrino, and I've never done it before, so I can't comment on what the experience is like for them from their point of view. Certainly, you know, they don't stop in all the places that we stop in, so I don't think that they experience the place quite as deeply as you do when you're walking. All right, so given that this is not a very well-known Camino, let's talk about it and find out what it's all about. Okay. So the first part is dominated by this Jada or Gaeta, the Roman road. And so when you leave Braga, it does take a day or so to sort of set up the Camino and get really into the teeth of the Camino. And so we walked the first day for 17 kilometers out of Braga, and that was uh, almost kind of a nothing day, really. It was just a continuation. In terms of sites and stuff, yeah, there wasn't that much of interest, and it was mostly on asphalt. But we had been warned that that was going to be the case, so we were prepared for that. Yeah, I mean, we talked previously about how the last few days of the talk 
Torres were similar to that, where you're walking on asphalt in these kind of urban areas. And so this first day out of Braga was kind of like that. And that's understandable given that it is, you know, a large city by Portuguese standards. There is one site very early in, on the first day. That's called, it's a chapel called San Frutuoso. And it's an amazing early medieval chapel from dating from 660. Uh, it's unfortunately only open in the afternoons. And we visited Braga last year just for a few days um, because Portugal was coming out of lockdown and we couldn't travel to other countries, but sort of tourism within the country was opening up. And so we visited it then. And it's, it's only open between, I think, 2 p.m. and 4.30 p.m. Uh, each day. And so it's unfortunate that you can't really go into it if you're walking this Camino because you're going to arrive very early in the morning because it's just on the outskirts of Braga. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an incredible place. So if you do walk this Camino, try to make an effort to see it the day before if you can. And so that would, if you were able to see it, you know, as you're walking, that would be the absolute highlight of the first day. Yeah, there wasn't really much else uh, on that first day. But we could tell even 17 kilometers out when we arrived in Caldelas, which is where we stayed that first night, that we were now getting into the mountains. You kind of see the mountains were ahead of us and that it was going to become this natural uh, path, you know, among nature and everything that, that we'd heard so much about. And Caldelas was the first of many uh, uh, hot springs towns that we passed through on the Camino, uh, on the Gata. So, uh, yeah, it started once you got there, then you kind of got a feel for what was coming next. So really the next probably three days, two, three and four, and really probably the, the second day was the biggest day in terms of the Jada aspect of this Camino. So uh, when you're about six kilometers out of Caldelas, so 23 in total out of Braga, you see your first Roman milestone. Mm -hmm. And so that's exciting because, you know, we'd heard that we were going to be seeing all these milestones. And, and so we saw one early on that second day. And then the Roman road begins after that. And it's probably important to point out that it's not a continuous Roman road where you're walking on the Roman stones, you know, nonstop for hours and hours and hours. It's kind of stretches where there are Roman stones and other stretches where there aren't. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting because I thought it would be more of a continuous road. And previously on the Camino Nascente, we had walked on a Roman road for many kilometers. Yeah. Uh, that was coming out of Guarda. And that was, uh, you know, an, a continuous stretch of Roman road for off the top of my head, about seven kilometers. Um, and so it wasn't like this on the Jada, which was actually probably better for our feet and knees and, and whatnot, <laughs> because we were walking mostly on these rural paths. And then every now and then there would just be these stretch of Roman stones. Yeah. And we were walking along the, you know, the trajectory of the original Roman road. Like that's where the stones would have been. It's just that there aren't that many of them that are still there in situ today. But you do have the milestones and lots more milestones than we've ever seen anywhere else before. Yeah. That's the real highlight of the Roman road in this case is actually the milestones and not the, the stones that form the road themselves. And so every Roman mile, we would come across these milestones. And what was interesting is something we weren't really aware of beforehand was it's not just one. Mm -hmm. There are several and sometimes mm -hmm. a half dozen or more. Yeah. Because from what I understand, uh, you know, each emperor would want to put, make their own mark, you know, and have a new milestone, uh, in their honor, you know, with an inscription with their name on it. And so, yeah, you'll come across a whole clump of them where they're all together and they're from different periods, different dates during the Roman Empire. Yeah. And it was amazing to me to see that, to be honest, because you kind of think, okay, a new emperor comes to power in Rome, you know, he's throwing all these games in the Colosseum and then he thinks, you know, and I really want some milestones out in the provinces, out, you know, in North Portugal, Galicia. And I just found that really fascinating. And, and that, you know, and there was one occasion where I think there were like 15 or 20 milestones 
at marking one mile. Yeah. And so you just see, you know, over a period of decades and centuries, even all these different emperors are adding a new milestone or having a new milestone added on their behalf um, to just create, like you said, these huge clumps of milestones, which sort of almost defeats the purpose of the exact marking of the, of the mile. You've got to kind of find the mm. original one, which is which actually marks the mile. Um, but just to go to that effort in this middle of nowhere place out in, in the rural provinces, I thought was really, really extraordinary. Yeah, that's true. And they're, you know, it's a really, makes it a really atmospheric thing now. In many cases, they're covered in moss and kind of overgrown and maybe kind of tilting and leaning from side to side. And to see them uh, grouped together like that, it's, it's really interesting. It's a different kind of Roman site than anything else I've seen before. And the Jada in general as a, as a Camino is this nature driven Camino. And so it was cool to see this, the sort of two aspects of it, the nature and the history come together in this early part, because mm -hmm. as we were seeing these milestones and walking on parts of these Roman roads, we were also coming into the mountains and we had some great views and we were seeing these little streams, these tiny little streams that would cross the path sometimes. And sometimes even uh, the water would run over the Roman stones. And so it was cool to, yeah, have both the scenic and the historic part of the Camino at the same time. Yeah, that's very true. So the second day, that was really the highlight because we saw the most milestones, I think, on that day. Um, so the highlight in terms of the, the Jada aspect or the Roman aspect, uh, the best day for me, and I'm sure for you too, of the entire Jada and Dusahiedus was the third day. Mm -hmm. And that was the day that we crossed from Portugal into Spain the first time, and more on that <laughs> later. Um, but also it's the day where you go through a national park, and it's the only national park in Portugal. Mm -hmm. And so you have um, incredible views, incredible scenery uh, all around. Yeah, the scenery there is really spectacular, and I'd really like to go back to that national park and do some more walking there, because I'm sure there's lots more to explore. Um, but yeah, we passed by just really beautiful waterfalls and walking through the forest and walking alongside this dam or, you know, kind of high up in the forest looking down over this dammed river and yeah, it was gorgeous. Yeah, I feel like we're saying this a lot now, but you know, we tend to think of the Camino as this village to village walk and it's not necessarily about the scenery, but then every now and then you get a day like this mm -hmm. and, uh, and it just kind of blows you away. And it's almost as though because you've been walking on the Camino and not necessarily having a day like that every day or even, mm -hmm. you know, that often, it makes it all the more special. You know, if you just yeah. go there for the day, you kind of expect that if you're in a national park, you're going to mm -hmm. have a really nice day there. But, you mm -hmm. know, we did the kind of hard yards on the on the road walking at yeah. uh, the back end of the Torres and the yeah. very early part of the Jeda. And then the reward for that was this spectacular day. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, the Torres, as we've mentioned, did have lots of road walking. And so it, it felt that much more special to get back into nature. And to be honest, probably apart from day one on the Gato, which, like we said, was, you know, just kind of a day for, to set yourself up to get into it. I'd say every other day probably had at least one section of the walk that could be a day hike in itself, because we were out in nature for most of the time that we were on the Gata. Yeah, I feel like that's the big calling card of, of this Camino is that, you know, it's out in nature, the scenery is really nice. I mean, in terms of historical aspects of the Camino, you're just looking at the Roman road and the Roman milestones, and then really just one town, which is called Ribadavia, which we'll get to, which has um, a fair bit of history to it. But apart from that, the real attraction of it is the nature.
Uh, and so, yeah, this day was just amazing. You know, what I really love were all the rivers and the water was just the, the clearest you could possibly imagine. Like you could just see all of the rocks on the bottom of the river. And I was even taking photos of those rocks. And then you look back at the photo and you don't really understand that there's any water between, you know, between <laughs> the camera and the rocks. It just looks like you're taking a picture of rocks. Like the water was that clear. Mm. Uh, and you have all these little cascades and these little rock pools. And, you know, and then you also have trees and forests around and mountains around as well. And it was just spectacular. And later, towards the end of the day, when we were already on the Spanish side, we found a, a waterfall. We found a waterfall at a distance that we'd been told about. And there was also a rock pool there and we went swimming in it and we were nowhere near civilization. We were nowhere near anybody. And we just had this pool to ourselves and it was amazing. That was amazing. Yeah. I think that's the only time that we've ever gone swimming on a Camino, isn't it? I mean, well, that we might have had access to a swimming pool or something, but have we ever like stopped walking and stripped off and gone swimming before? Yeah, I don't think so because we haven't done a lot of the coastal Caminos, the Portuguese coastal mm -hmm. or the Camino del Norte. Um, and so, yeah, we haven't had that opportunity that often, but it was also really warm that day. It was like 30, 31 degrees. Uh, and so we were diving in the pool and, and having the time of our lives there and just looking around and just admiring the whole thing and it is funny because you do need luck on the Camino sometimes or sometimes you get luck you get good luck and other times you get bad luck 24 hours later we were caught in a massive storm mm -hmm. and so if that had been that day when we'd walked past this rock pool we wouldn't have even noticed it we would have been you know huddled in our punches and mm. all miserable and cold and everything and and just could have walked straight past but as it turned out we had an absolutely glorious day for this for this day, which I think is the highlight of the Jada uh, anyway, and we were lucky with the weather. Yeah, certainly it was the highlight for us. It's kind of hard, I think, for us to know, you know, what the following days would have been like in other circumstances, because unfortunately the cold and wet weather did continue for us uh, for a number of days. And, you know, there were lots of times when we couldn't really see much of what was around us because it was all foggy and, um, you know, you're just soaked and you're just it's not fun and you're just trying to get through the day. And it was so hard to even imagine, like we were thinking back and saying, remember like two days ago, three days ago, we were all hot and sweaty and jumped into that swimming pool, that pool, that natural pool, and it felt so good. Like it just seemed inconceivable that that happened so soon afterwards. Yeah, it did change really, really quickly. I mean, on the whole, we were very, very lucky with weather on this whole Camino. So mm -hmm. the first 48 days, Days, and the 48th of those days being this this third day through the national park it only rained on us three times and yeah. all those three times were in the morning and by the afternoon it already cleared and it was nice and sunny again and the third of those three times was more than three weeks before uh this day mm -hmm. and so we hadn't had any rain in more than three weeks um and the start of the jada we you know had a continuation of this great sunny weather it was getting warm swimming all of that and then even the next day was uh, was mostly fine. I don't think it was that sunny, but it was overcast, but it wasn't wet. Mm -hmm. And then once we were crossing back into Portugal, because you have to cross from Portugal to Spain, then back to Portugal, then back to Spain. It's just a little quirk of this Camino. But once we were, yeah, once we had crossed back. Because the border does this weird kind of serpentine thing. And I guess... The trajectory of the Camino also lends itself to that. But even if you were like walking straight north, you would basically still be going in 
of Spain and then out and then back in again. Right. And so as a sort of side note, that did also cause some interesting language complications because we went from Portuguese and then we were in uh, Spain and, you know, I can speak Spanish as, as you can, but you also wanted to speak Galego. Uh-huh. Uh, and But it's sometimes hard to find people who speak Galego, even in Galicia. And sometimes we just didn't know what to speak. And then yeah. there was that one time when we were at a restaurant and we were, we'd crossed into Spain, but the waitress appeared to not really speak Spanish, but spoke no. Portuguese. And so we just yeah. didn't know what to speak with her. Yeah. And so, you know, going back and forth between Portugal and Spain, well, it was kind of an interesting experience just for those few days. But so on our fourth afternoon, as we had crossed back to Portugal, it just started absolutely pouring. Mm-hmm. Like and, huge thunderstorm. And really close. Mm-hmm. Um, we heard thunder and saw the lightning, you know, basically simultaneously and the lightning felt really close to us. Mm-hmm. And that was right at the end of the stage. So we were, we were lucky it wasn't at the beginning of the stage, but it was in the late afternoon, but we got absolutely drenched and it only, I mean, it only takes a couple of minutes to get really drenched when it's really raining like that. And mm. then shortly after that, we were able to find shelter um, in the portico of a little chapel. And then it started hailing. And mm-hmm. So we didn't get caught in the hailstorm, but we were kind of watching it. And it's one of those things where you're you're just kind of waiting for it to pass. But then you don't know, should we go? Should we wait? Mm-hmm. I mean, luckily, we only had, I think, three more kilometers to go for the rest of that day. But we were absolutely soaked. And fortunately... We stayed in a place that night that had a hairdryer and we could dry all our stuff because all our shoes and socks and everything were absolutely drenched. Yeah, no, that was that was kind of a hairy situation. And I remember uh, there was someone had told us about an optional way that we could go for those last few kilometers uh, that was going to be a bit longer, but was going to keep us like up in the mountains and on these nice natural paths instead of walking on the road, because otherwise the normal Camino is to walk the last three kilometers into town on the road. And so we were, we had been like weighing up whether or not we were going to do that, whether, because it was a long day and we didn't know if we'd want to do the, this extra length or not. And then when we heard the thunder and saw the lightning, we're like no we need to get off this mountain right now (laughs) like it was kind of dangerous to be honest yeah that was an interesting point that that decision to choose either the road or this longer but but nicer path and and, i think we thought we were going to choose the nicer path until it started raining you know over the next few days it was interesting the way that that worked out because as we talked about throughout the season you know we all will always choose um, a non-asphalt road if that's possible um, just because it's nicer and because you have trouble walking on hard surfaces with your plantar fasciitis but once it began raining and then we got caught, you know, in quite a bit of rain over the coming days, you know, the paths that we usually like to walk on, the little dirt paths became pretty disastrous because they just got flooded. Yeah, they were like streams. You were literally like walking through a little river. And so the asphalt actually became, I don't know if you quite got to this stage, but I got to the <laughs> stage where I preferred it mm. uh, over the next few days because it was just easier and you didn't, you just weren't, you know, stepping into puddles and mud and all this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. you could at least... Yeah, the path was at least clear ahead of you. Right. And one advantage for me personally of the rain is that actually my feet don't hurt when we're walking in the rain because they don't hurt when they're cold, um, which I figured out on the Camino de Madrid when it snowed and, <laughs> and suddenly my feet didn't hurt anymore because they were so cold. And also when it rains and I'm like, if it's really heavy rain and so my feet get soaked and I end up in squelchy wet socks they're going to stay wet and stay cold and keep my feet cold so actually i didn't have any problem with plantar fasciitis for those days when we were walking in the rain so i guess that's something to be thankful for yeah definitely it's good to turn a negative into positive when you can um so 
it was unfortunate that we did get quite a bit of rain over the coming days. You know, not as much as we could have. I think looking back now, maybe it wasn't as bad as it could have been. There were a couple of occasions where we arrived and it wasn't raining. And then as soon as we'd arrived in our final destination for the day, it started raining. In one case, it started pouring. And mm -hmm. so we were lucky to, to avoid that. Um, but it was just kind of, I mean, you know, Galicia is like this, even in the summer. I mean, it was June. But, you know, we often had those days where you'd sort of have poncho on and then poncho off. And then you'd think maybe the rain had passed, but then it hadn't. And it would just mm -hmm. sort of rain on and off throughout the day. And um you know it just um it just made it a bit difficult and we had some you know fog and mist and things like that so as you referenced before sometimes we were you know in some mountain areas and we didn't have great visibility and we couldn't see the scenery that was around us um but i do tend to think that the best of the scenery was that day through the national park and so mm -hmm. we had an amazing day for that so we can't really complain at all well we've just done quite a bit of complaining but um yeah you're right and yeah, you, it, it's something that you've got to expect, particularly in Galicia. And, you know, we had been really lucky with weather up until that point. Um, so, yeah, you just have to kind of take it as it comes. But, yeah, if, if that had been our entire Camino, if we had been doing just the Gata, then I don't know. Like, I think you, I would have come away from it saying, man, we just, you know, walked in the rain for a really long time. And I don't know how great of an experience it would have been overall. Because it was a relatively small part of a much longer Camino, it was not as bad. Moving on. So if we look at the second part, the Achiedus part of this Camino, so aside from the rain, um, so we walked through a lot of vineyards and that's obviously where this Achiedus part comes from. And so that was a, a highlight of the second part. And as we mentioned, it was June. So, um, you know, there weren't ripe grapes. We were seeing the, the very first grapes uh -huh. starting to appear on the vineyards. And that was interesting because we'd been walking through some vineyards earlier on the Camino and we hadn't seen any grapes. And so it was kind of cool to see that, you know, the season was progressing and, and we were starting to see those first grapes. I remember seeing some really teeny tiny ones, like a few weeks before that. And then, yeah, when we got to the, to the Ribeiro, they weren't ripe yet, but they were much bigger than these teeny tiny ones that we had seen. So yeah, you could see how, you know, how the course of the seasons was evolving and how nature was growing and stuff. And so the Ribeiro, which is the area that you reference, is, is this part uh, of Galicia, and it's quite a famous uh, wine-growing area even within all of Spain. And I always find that interesting because there's so much rain in Galicia and we sort of, you know, compare it with the Celtic lands of Ireland and Scotland and things like that where you can't really grow wine. No. Um, and so it's interesting that you can grow wine and that it's well-regarded. I don't know enough about wine growing to wine making to know why that is, but yeah, it's a fair point. And so that, you know, it's always nice to walk through vineyards. And so we did that um, for, you know, parts of several days. The other town that we mentioned that's in this kind of second part is Ribadavia. And we were looking forward to this. And it was interesting that when we looked at the stage guide in the, in the guidebook, they had set up the stages more or less to try to create equidistant stages, which makes sense. And so it's 239 kilometers. They had 10 stages. So you're looking at around 24 kilometers per stage. Mm -hmm. But they didn't stop in Ribadavia because it didn't really fit into that uh, neat you know, 24 uh, kilometer stage days. And so we decided that we did want to stay there. And that's why we did 11 stages instead of 10. And I think we only did about 15 kilometers into Ribadavia that day. And then we had to kind of catch back up or get back in sync uh, over the coming days with, with the stages that were recommended. But we came into Ribadavia and we crossed, well, it's actually at the junction of, or just before there is a junction of two rivers, one which is the Avia, 
Yes. Right? So that's why it's the Rivadavia. It's on the banks of the Avia River. And the other river is the Minho. Mm-hmm. And the Minho in different parts of Spain and Portugal is the border between Spain and Portugal if you go further west. And so we cross that, for example, between Valencia and Tui on the Portuguese central. And so that's a kind of famous part of that is when you cross the Minho and then you're suddenly into Spain. Uh, at this part, we the, the river does not form the border. Uh, we did cross the border three different times, but, and we did across the river as well, but it wasn't the border at that point. But we came to Rubidavia and as soon as we got there, it started pouring and we thought, mm-hmm. oh, this is maybe going to wipe out our day. But actually later on, it, it cleared up. And it was really in a period of five or six days, it was kind of the only you know, period of sunlight um, that we had. And that was really, so we were really lucky with that, mm-hmm. uh, that we made this decision to stay there and we got to explore the town and it was quite, it was a really nice um, town. There was a castle, which, you know, we hadn't seen castles for a while after our you know, castle mm-hmm. mania on the Communion Ascent a few weeks earlier. Uh, and there were some really nice churches. And there was also, uh, you know, in sort of an old quarter of town uh, with some Jewish heritage as well. And so it was really interesting. It was. It was a very nice town. Um, maybe I'll go back there one day because I do plan to explore more of Galicia. Yeah, I think that was definitely a good decision for us anyway, you know, since we're interested in the history. It was a good decision to have a short day going into Rivadavia and then stay there. I mean, ideally, you know, we had hoped to have a bit more time to explore and do some sightseeing in the afternoon, but because it was raining, we got a late start to that. Um, but we we were able to... It's not a big town, so we were no, able to And sunset's it. not till 10 p.m. in Spain anyway. True, yes. <laughs> <laughs> also that. Um, so, yeah, we got to see most of the things of interest, I'd say, in, in the main town center. And yeah, it was really beautiful. Um, yeah, I mean, just about the recommended stages. I think they do say in the book, you know, feel totally free to do it as you wish. And they give you all of the options for the different places that you can stay in, uh, you know, that are not on their kind of recommended route. Um, so, you know, you are encouraged to make it your own Camino and do it however you like. And yeah, for us, definitely staying in Ribadavia was a good idea. Yep, completely agree. And then after we left Ribadavia, the next couple of days, you know, we had uh, some days where it was raining a fair bit and, you know, we sort of felt that the best of the scenery maybe had was behind us by that point. And so we were just sort of coming towards the end and we'd sort of run out of steam a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we had sort of two consecutive days, which weren't really great days. And yeah, we were kind of a little bit limping to the, to the finish. You know, we'd had such an amazing Camino, you know, by this point over 50 days. Uh, we'd had incredible weather for almost all of it. And then suddenly just to have a little bit of a downer with the rain, you know, just made it not such a great finish at, at a certain point. And so we came just a couple of days before the end and our, our town for the or village for the night was a town called Codaceta. And, you know, we hadn't had a great day and we, you know, we weren't yeah, feeling that good. We only had two more days left to Santiago. And we kind of just thought that the second half of the of the Jeda and the Sahiedus was just kind of a washout. Mm. And just because of the weather. And it wasn't because of any other reason. But, you know, it, we just find it hard to enjoy it when we're walking in the rain. And so we sort of, sort of came into Codaceta, you know, feeling, I don't know, a little bit sorry for ourselves. Mm. And then it just completely turned around. Yep. <laughs> and it was all because of the people in Cordoceta, who we met and who were so incredibly welcoming and hospitable and just, um, yeah, made us feel so at home. I, I'm actually considering going back there and spending some more time there to work on my Galego. Um, later on this year, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it was, 
it was an incredible kind of spirit of the Camino moment. And that's definitely, I'd say that's the one place where I felt the spirit of the Camino the strongest on our whole 60 days. Oh, completely agree. Completely agree. So as we mentioned at the beginning, this is a kind of bottom-up Camino and there's sort of a handful of people who have been really instrumental in sort of getting it going and doing a lot of the waymarking and writing the guidebook and things like that. And Coda Setter is kind of the hub for all of this activity. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the uh, author or the co-author of the guidebook and of a historical book about the Camino, about this Camino, uh, is from there. The other co-author we already met in Braga mm -hmm. um, and and as an aside, uh, Enrique, this one that we met in Braga, was also a huge help. He sent reams of information for us every day telling yeah. us where shops were going to be open and what we should look out for and all this yeah. kind of stuff. So he was amazing. And he was the one who kind of introduced us to the spirit of the Camino when we met him in Braga. Yeah. And then that just was sort of brought to its full culmination here in Codaceta. And there were other people who lived there who were heavily involved in the Camino project. Uh, one of them had translated uh, one of the, or translated the guide into English. Uh, one of the others runs a, a bar there, which is called the, the, the Jeda Indusariedos. That's the name of the bar. Mm -hmm. And so they're just incredibly invested in the Camino and it just completely lifted our spirits. And we just had an amazing day there. Yeah. And they also, um, had a little ceremony for us and gave us gifts. <laughs> they did. Uh, it turned out that we were numbers 300 and 301 who had come through Codaceta this year. So again, I mean, again, we're in a pandemic as well, but um, it's not a very well-known Camino. So obviously in a normal year, you have thousands and thousands, uh, even hundreds of thousands going on a Camino like the Frances. Um, but yeah, it's more in the hundreds on the Jeda de Andus And so, yeah, we were numbers 300 and 301. So I guess at every hundred, they have mm -hmm. a little ceremony. And so uh, Carlos, the co-author of the book, came to Codaceta. He doesn't live there anymore, but he came to partake in it. And they had T-shirts, which are branded um, with the Camino name, and they gave us T-shirts. And mm -hmm. they just made us feel incredible welcome and we just couldn't have been more gracious and grateful for the welcome that we got there yeah for sure it was very memorable and so you know we've become friends with these people basically we're now you know connected with them on facebook they have a facebook group mm -hmm. you know they're, they're so active in promoting the camino and you joined the group early on and that was also an interesting thing um that you joined the group and started posting some things and started writing things in galego as well mm -hmm. as you do um <laughs> and then one day I don't think it was related to Coda Center. I think it was a different town, but you called ahead for accommodation and, and were talking in, I think you were talking in, um, Gallego or even Castilian Spanish and said, you know, we're pilgrims on the Camino and we're going to be in this, in your town tomorrow. Is there any lodging there? And then the person said, are you the American girl from Facebook? Yeah. Yeah. That was actually Coda Center. That was Jorge, um, who is the co-author of the other guide, I don't know if we should try to explain this in more depth, but there are two books about the Camino de Gaeta de Sarriedos. So one is more of a practical guide for pilgrims that tells you about wayfinding and stuff. And then one is more of a cultural and historical guide that talks about the monuments and the, the churches and, and milestones and the things that you see along the way. And so Carlos, who we mentioned who was originally from Codaceta and now lives in Pontevedra, and he came to Codaceta for this ceremony to welcome us. He co-authored the, the Practical Guide together with Enrique, who lives in Braga, and he co-authored the Monument Guide together with 
Jorge, who uh, we didn't actually meet, but he also lives in Codaceta. And just as an aside, the the practical guide has already been translated into various languages. The monument guide is only available in Galego, so I am working on an English translation, which is going to be the first book that I've ever translated from Galego. So that's an exciting project for me. Definitely. And they were really happy to, to hear that, that you could do that. Also because Francisco or Frank, who was the one who translated the other book, the guidebook, into English, but he's not a native English speaker. I mean, he speaks it uh, well, well, I assume he speaks it well enough um, to do this translation. We were speaking to him in, in Spanish or Gallego. And so it's possible that you can also uh, work on that one as well, because the, mm. auth- the co-authors of the actual guidebook, one of them is Portuguese and the other is Gallego. And so that was kind of, you know, the Portuguese and the Gallego versions are kind of the original versions. And then it's been translated into several other languages as well. Yeah, so maybe there's some updates or improvements that I can make to, to that one. But basically, this experience was, was just so great that our memory, or certainly my memory, of the Jeira dos Arieiros is basically that first part, the national park, mm-hmm. and then Codaceta and the welcome that we got from the, from the people there. Yep. And those are kind of the two great highlights of this Camino for me. Yeah, for me as well. I agree. <laughs> So just to finish off, we're just going to look at a few practical things about this Camino and just three in particular. And the first is waymarking because, you know, we weren't sure when we started what the waymarking was like because there'd been people had said, oh, it's marked from a certain point onwards or they're still working on the waymarking and things like that. I think our experience was that it's it's just kind of inconsistent. Mm-hmm. There's some days where the marking is good and there's other days where the marking is not so good or, mm-hmm. or parts of days where it's not so good. So there are GPS tracks and these are heavily promoted. And I, I think the, the, you know, people who are involved in, in creating and developing this Camino have kind of hitched themselves to the tracks more than the waymarking at this stage. They, the waymarking should be better, but mm-hmm. they've sort of put a lot of effort into making the tracks really good. Mm-hmm. And now Enrique has made, he actually did this for us. He made this super track where he began <laughs> to mark all of these shops and restaurants and everything on the track. And that's now, I think, going to be the base track that that people are going to use from now on. Yeah, we've also in Google Maps. Yeah. He uploaded it into Google Maps because we said that that was how we were going to use it. I mean, you can upload the GPS tracks into Maps.me or various other GPS programs. And But he had asked us, what are you going to use? And we said, we're going to use Google Maps. And so then he started, yeah, marking all of these different <laughs> things that we, anything we might possibly need or might be of interest to us. Uh, he made a little marker on the map. And so, yeah, anyone can have access to that it was all in Portuguese, um, but yeah, it's pretty clear. Like if it's a bar or if it's a accommodation and things like that. So that was super helpful. But yeah, about the mar- the way marking, I think overall it was better than I expected because we had heard that it wasn't good at all and that you know the tracks, the GPS tracks, were absolutely essential, which they are, but they're not always essential. It's not like you you never have any arrows and you always have to be following the tracks. There were some days when the, the physical way marking was actually pretty good. Yeah. And, and then there were just certain times I felt around the border area, particularly the crossing back to Portugal and then the crossing into Spain the next day. So around uh, Castro de Labrador, mm-hmm. where the arrows were not very good. And 
what we found out was that when you're walking in the rain and you're relying on using your phone to find the tracks, um, that's quite difficult. Yeah, because, you know, sometimes it was quite heavy rain and you can't really be pulling your phone, which is a delicate device, out of your pocket and, you know, getting it wet all the time. So that was that was another thing that made the rain especially difficult on, on the Gaeta for us. Also, the fact that it's really rural and really remote, like the Nascente, um, which we loved. We loved being out in nature, but it also meant that there weren't very many places to stop. There weren't many bars. Uh, you know, there was one day in particular where we never passed a bar. We passed one, uh, but it was closed. And so we really needed just a place to sit down because you can't, there's even nowhere to, to sit down, um, without, you know, just sitting in the rain. <laughs> um, and we actually, it was quite fortuitous that we passed by a church and for whatever reason, you decided to try the, the side door and it was unlocked and it was a, seemed to be a mostly abandoned church and it was all dark inside and kind of eerie but it was dry and so we were just so thankful to be able to go inside there and have our lunch because otherwise where would we stop to eat we needed to eat but we couldn't there was no shelter to get out of the rain yeah that was kind of amazing that place yeah i just sort of decided to push the side door uh, i pushed the front door as well which didn't do anything but the side door opened and yeah it was this very dark yeah like you said eerie semi-abandoned place and just the kind of place where everything's creaking and, you know, it could be a set from a movie or, or something like that. It was a very strange place. But, yeah, we had our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yeah, it wasn't the best lunch, but we were just so thankful at that point to have shelter and be able to dry off and, and warm up a little bit. Okay, but getting back to the waymarking. The other aspect is that there's a, a kind of rival Camino that is mm. similar to the Jeda uh, in terms of where it goes. It's called the Camino Minyoto. Ribeiro. Mm -hmm. And so Minhoto refers to the Minho area because in on the Portuguese side of the Minho River, the actual uh, region is called the Minho um, mm -hmm. in northwestern Portugal. So Minhoto means, you know, of the Minho. Uh, and Ribeira, or Ribeiro, sorry, referring to the area on the Galician side where the vineyards are. Mm -hmm. And so that's, and, and even coming right out of Braga, we started seeing signs for this other Camino. And we were confused because we'd never heard of it. Yeah. And for for several days, actually, I didn't really think that it was a Camino in the sense of a Camino de Santiago, because Camino just means way or path. So I just thought it was some long distance hiking trail called Camino Minoto Ribeiro, also because the signs that we're seeing were purple. They weren't in Camino colors. They weren't yellow or blue. Yeah, on the Portuguese side, they're purple. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then for a while, we lost that Camino and we didn't see it for a few days. And then sort of towards the end, we started to see these signs again. And then it was strange because sometimes they it would follow, sometimes our Camino, the Jeda, would follow the same arrows and then sometimes it wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And the Minhoto Ribeiro is actually better signposted. And there's a whole thing that we probably shouldn't get into too much, but basically mm -hmm. it, it goes more to the major towns of the area and it's sort of a way to connect these major towns and it has it has uh, government funding. Mm -hmm. And so the signage is a lot more professional, whereas as we've mentioned a couple of times, the Sheda is this sort of bottom-up project uh, where they don't really have the funding to, to, to have this signage. And so the signage for the Sheda, even where there is signage, it's... It, it's let's call it lovingly amateur. Sometimes there's like stickers that are on poles uh -huh. and things like that. It's not, uh, you know, the mahones that you might expect on the Franceses. Nothing like that. No. Uh, it's not even usually 
you know, it's usually just kind of things that are, are pinned onto trees, like arrows that are pinned onto trees or yeah. onto whatever you can pin something onto yeah. rather than... Little um, small cardboard signs, for example, or wooden arrows, perhaps. But yeah, no posts or, you know, nothing big. And so there's kind of this rivalry that's developing between the two Caminos. And uh, yeah, it, it's unfortunate that that, that exists, but... Um, Actually, as part of this celebration of us being the 300 and 301st pilgrims, you did an interview with a journalist from La Voz de Galicia, the mm-hmm. newspaper, and then they wrote a story and published it the next day and then talked about this other Camino as being the enemy. And that was the actual <laughs> word enemigo, right? Yeah. Um, that was the actual word used of our Camino. Um, and so, you know, we heard stories about, uh, you know, the sort of unfortunate nature of this sort of rivalry between these two Caminos. But um, it can be a little bit confusing especially towards that that latter part where you start seeing a lot more of these signs for the Minyoto Ribeiro, and sometimes it's the way you want to go if you're on the Jada, and sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. And apparently, you know, there have been cases of people who are backing the Minyoto Ribeiro who will remove the signage for the Camino da Gueira. Um, so there may be reasons why the, uh, there are reasons why the waymarking is good in some points and not so good in other points. Right. Uh, another practical aspect of this Camino, and it's interesting, whenever we were mentioning it to people, Portuguese people or, or Galician people who were familiar with the Camino or, you know, on this Facebook group, everybody said how difficult it was. Yeah. In terms of the going up and down, because it's quite mountainous. And so every day, basically, people would say stuff like, oh, you know, you've got a tough day today, you've got this big climb, and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And so that seems to be a big part of the reputation of it, at least locally. Mm-hmm. But we didn't find it that difficult. No, honestly, like the physical challenge, n- no. But I, you know, I'm fine with going up and down hills because I love being in the mountains and I honestly find that easier sometimes. Um, I mean, also because of my foot problem, uh, it hurts the least when I'm going uphill. That, that hurts a lot less than, than walking on flatland. Um, and I just find that it keeps it interesting and, and also for my body, like it's good to be doing different things and working different muscles in different ways. Whereas if you're just like constantly on the flat, that repetitive motion it it, it takes its toll on me so I have no problem doing ups and downs but yeah a lot of people had said that it was challenging and you know there is a lot of up and down a lot of ascent and descent uh, but for us that wasn't a problem no, and there was one point in particular where there's this ascent which goes up to a a cruzeiro uh, Mm -hmm. across and and it had sort of been talked up as this, you know, real difficult climb. And then we just sort of got to the cross and we hadn't really almost realized that we'd even started the climb yet. It wasn't yeah. quite like that, but we got there and we're like, oh, is this it already? You know, we yeah. we thought it was going to be this really difficult climb and it wasn't. So I don't know. We just didn't really happen to find it difficult, but apparently um, other people do. I mean, you know, it was the latter part of a 60-day Camino, so we were in pretty good physical shape at that point. We had lots of training for it, uh, you know, just by uh, virtue of the, the rest of the Camino that we had done up to that point. Right, but I think if you're thinking in terms of, for example, the, the first day of the Pyrenees crossing on the Camino Frances, no, it's nothing like that. Yeah, no. It's much shorter ups and downs, I would say. And so the final thing to talk about is that we've mentioned that on the Communion Ascent, we didn't see any pilgrims at all. And nope. then on the Taurus, we also didn't see any pilgrims at all. Nope. So we got to Braga uh, after 45 days. And then we walked the first 
three and a bit days on the Jeda de Sarriedus and still didn't see any problems. So we're on day 49 mm-hmm. by this point. And shortly before, probably an hour or so before the torrential downpour with the thunder and the lightning, we ran into, in the middle of nowhere, we yep. caught up to our first pilgrim. Yep. And we actually ended up seeing two pilgrims on this Camino. So a total of two in our 56 days it took us to get to Santiago. And they are both extremely memorable and just worth talking about for a minute or two. (laughs) Yeah. So the first one we met, as we said, on this kind of mountain plain on the fourth day. And it was an older Frenchman named Jean-Marie. And it was just so weird because we kind of saw him ahead of us and we're like, there's a guy there. Like, who, who is this guy? Uh-huh. The, I really didn't think he was a pilgrim because he was—he didn't have a shell on uh-huh. his backpack. and um, His clothes that. were a little bit funny as well. I think he had, mm-hmm. like, denim shorts. Yeah, and yeah. So he didn't look like a pilgrim. He's kind of this spiritual uh, guy. And so at first we kind of saw him from a distance and we thought, you know, what is this? You know, and we hadn't seen any pilgrims and we were accustomed to not seeing any and we were almost at 50 days. Um, but we caught up with him and it turned out that he was a pilgrim and a very memorable one. <laughs> Yes, he was quite uh, an eccentric character, quite entertaining. Um, he only spoke French, and fortunately, we also speak French, so we were able to communicate. Um, but he was completely unprepared for this Camino, and I have no idea how he got there. Uh, apparently, he had started on the Camino Portugues Central, or the coastal. The coastal, yeah. He started on the coastal. and Because he said it was too touristy, because you know, right. you're on you're in these kind of beachside towns and things like that, and he didn't like it. Right. And he was sometimes a bit vague about how he got from one place to another. I think somebody, I think he might have got a lift and just been kind of dropped sort of in the middle of the of the Jeda and then just started walking. Yeah. But he, you know, as we've mentioned, the way marking is sometimes not very good. And we had this guidebook and we had the tracks, and he didn't have either of those two things. No, I think he didn't. Again, I don't know how he even knew about it. Someone must have just mentioned it to him. You know, he said mentioned to someone on the coastal, oh, I don't like this, it's too touristy. And they're like, oh, well, you should go do the Gata instead. <laughs> if you don't like tourists, then you won't see any there, which is fair enough. But I guess didn't tell him, but actually, you know, you need to plan it carefully and you have to have the GPS tracks, otherwise you're going to get lost. And he found us just in the nick of time. Yeah, because we were able to give him the tracks uh, because we could share them, uh, you know, through our phones uh, with him. And shortly after that, yeah, the, the, there were no, there was no signage at all and the rain came mm-hmm. and we really, really needed the tracks for that section. And even with him having the tracks, he still got, uh, got lost. Yeah, he kept calling us. Right. And he mentioned that he was only 300 meters away from the lightning. I'm not sure how he exactly figured that out or that was his estimation of it. Um, but. Yeah, he was, in, and he also walks very slowly. Even by his own admission, he does about three kilometers per hour. So we chatted with him for a while, but then we went on ahead. Um, and yeah, he he was he would have been in trouble without the tracks for sure. So it was it was yeah. fortuitous uh, that we met him. And we were able to help him a little bit, mm-hmm. and we did see him a couple other times uh, over the next few days because he would just you know take a, a little taxi here and here and there to sort of <laughs> catch up. And he was just he called it uh, in French. He was calling it la mode aventure. So mm-hmm. he was just he was just kind of in this adventurous random mode where he would just kind of decide each day where he wanted to go. And if he wanted to get a lift somewhere, he would arrange that somehow. But he was just so funny because he would call us a lot. And you speak better French than me, as tends to happen with, with all of our languages. But he would call you and, 
and say, where are you guys staying tonight? Or is there a place to stay? And mm-hmm. or he would say, I called somewhere, but they didn't speak French. And so I couldn't make a reservation. Yeah, he would just speak French to everyone. Just like, you know, expect that everyone in the world, or at least in Spain, speaks French, which is not the case. So honestly, I don't know how he survived. But um, so far, he seemed, he got to he made it to Santiago. He sent us a photo or a video mm-hmm. of him in Santiago. Yes, but he did spend a night in hospital before that. True. <laughs> uh, which we, we don't really have the full story of that. But we stayed in touch with him for a while and we, we should get back in touch now that we're home. Um, but yeah, he did manage to make it to Santiago, which is very good because it seemed like that might be, you know... Um, that might not happen at, at a certain point because he would send these these sort of random messages and he said one and said guess where I spent the night last night and I, I replied I don't know on a boat because I thought he because he'd switched back at that point to right. the Portuguese central yeah. and he was near Padron and I thought maybe he was um, taking the the boat that you can take at the end of the Variante Spiritual uh-huh. um, but no he said no I was in hospital <laughs> um, and we kind of thought at first we were sort of shocked but then on the other hand kind of thought well that's you know, yeah, we might perfect, have guessed that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was our adventures with Jean-Marie. The other pilgrim that we met was a 78-year-old Dutch lady named Gertrudis, and we met her in Codaceta. And so this amazing afternoon and evening that we had in Codaceta with this great welcome, we also spent part of that with Gertrudis. And she was amazing because she's still doing Caminos by herself at 78. She usually does two a year, and the pandemic has kind of, you know, interrupted that. Um, but everybody loves her because mm-hmm. everybody wants to take care of her, and everybody takes her in. And so the day that we met her the day before that she had taken and I, I don't know if she did this deliberately but she had gone onto the Minoto Ribeiro the other Camino because she'd found herself in one of these larger towns that's not on the Jada. Yeah, I think she probably did that because she does shorter days than we do, and she probably needed to go off Camino a little bit to get to Forcare, I think is the name mm-hmm. of that town, um, because there's accommodation there that would be kind of halfway between uh, the typical stage. But anyway, the mayor of the town met her, or mm-hmm. somehow was told that there was this 78-year-old Dutch pilgrim there, and so the mayor said, what are you doing tomorrow? And she said, well, I'm continuing to wherever, and the mayor said, no, you're not you're staying here uh, for a rest day and I'm going to take you around the town. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like at every stop, um, she gets this kind of treatment that Mm -hmm. everybody just, you know, that she just sort of melts everybody and everybody wants to take care of her and look after her. And and she talked about it with us, how, you know, because she was also part of this celebration of the 300 pilgrims. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, one day after another, people are always doing stuff for her. And even just a couple of days ago, and we've been back for a few days now, um, and someone posted on one of these Facebook groups, oh, Gertrude just made it to Santiago. And, you know, everybody (laughs) was cheering and everybody was happy. And and just for her entire journey, everybody's looking out for her. And it just must be this amazing experience for her to have later in her life. You know, she's by herself because her husband has passed away but mm-hmm. she's still doing Caminos by herself and her husband mm-hmm. told her to keep doing that as mm-hmm. he was dying mm-hmm. and everybody wants to look after her and she keeps having the, these amazing journeys. Yeah, and I think she's really inspiring to so many people who meet her. I mean, she was inspiring to me. It's a brave thing for her to do uh, at her age to, to go off alone and um, but yeah, she's always well taken care of because people are always so amazed to meet the seventy-eight year old woman who's walking by herself, and so they make sure that she gets to where she needs to go. Right. So in the end, in our first fifty-six days, we only met two pilgrims, and it was those two, Jean-Marie and Gertrude. So, yeah, I guess the I don't know. Maybe the the moral is if you're going to walk something like the Jeiros. You're going to meet some interesting people along the way, whether those be local people or a couple other crazy pilgrims who are also doing this <laughs> this Camino that no one else has really heard of. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was kind of a fluke that we met anyone because we 
you know, like you said, we hadn't met anyone on the Nascent or the Torres in terms of pilgrims. And uh, when we spoke to Enrique in Braga, he said, yeah, you're not going to meet anyone on the Gaira either. Like, it's really rare, you know, especially right now, it would be really rare for, for pilgrims to cross paths on the Gaira. But in the end, we did cross paths twice with these really interesting characters, and they definitely added a lot to our Gaira experience as well. Absolutely. So in the end, if you want a lot of great nature, if you want uh, to walk on the Roman road, see the Roman milestones, also walk through these vineyards and have this great experience, you know, meeting local people along the way, then um, as long as you get some decent weather, the Jeda is, is really great. Yeah, definitely recommend it. And if people are going to do it, you know, one of the things you should do is try and, and hook up with some of these people in advance, you know, either through Facebook or, or through other ways or get in touch with us. Um, because even meeting Enrique and Braga was a huge help to us right at the beginning, because as per usual, we didn't know anything about the Camino that we were doing. He actually get or sold us the, the books. Mm-hmm. And we'd been in touch with him earlier because we wanted to get a copy of these books, but we were already on the Camino by the time we decided we were going to do uh, this part of the Camino and so we didn't uh, it wasn't possible for us to buy these books and have them sent to us mm-hmm. um, and so that was great to meet him and he gave us huge amounts of practical information and then once we got to Cota Seda, as we said earlier that was just the culmination of the spirit of the Camino and um, something that we'll remember for a long time yeah absolutely Okay, so Santiago was not the end. Uh, we did continue to Fisterra, and so that will be the subject of the final episode of this season of the podcast so until then now that we're in Spain, Buen Camino. And I guess now that we're in Galicia, Bo Camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino. Buen Camino.